Hello, and welcome to the Collider Podcast. I'm Collider Senior Editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is Managing Editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today, we'll be talking about the Oscar nominations, which were announced this morning, and we are struggling to care about them, which is not <laughs> like the best lead-in, I admit, to a podcast. It's like, here's a thing we don't really care about. But like, I think it's important to dig into, like, what do the Oscars mean in a year where everything went to streaming? There wasn't really a cultural conversation. There wasn't a sort of, uh, when, when people get out there, when people go to a movie theater, that invests them more in what they are seeing. They made the time out of their lives to not just watch a movie, but to go to the theater and be in that experience. And we didn't have that. And I really feel like the impact of that is that there's not a lot of investment this year, which is a shame because the the movies themselves are are still worthwhile. And I, I have no objection to what looks like Nomadland being the night's big winner based on the precursor awards and, and how things are shaping up. I have no objection to that, but I do feel like we are in for of an, a year of the Oscars where people just kind of shrug it off. Adam, what do you think? Yeah, it's really disappointing <laughs> as someone who, I mean, if you're a longtime listener to this podcast, you know, I usually do care about the Oscars and, and find them fascinating and find them compelling and engaging in their own way. Um, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think the Oscars are, uh, I don't think they crown like the best anything, but I think it's a fun way to kind of celebrate movies. Um, it just, it, you know, for one, it's a weird crop of contenders and, and, you know, I say that knowing that like, we're making history here with the first time ever that two female directors have been nominated for best director, deservedly so. I think Chloe Zhao and Emerald Fennell fully deserve those nominations. Um, we've got our first Asian American best actor nominee in Steven Yun. Um, and there's a lot of like really good films, but it seems like the kind of the recurring, the recurring theme of this year is like, there's no like bold masterpiece in the mix, or there's no like, Oh my God, that's going to be one of my favorite movies of all time. There's a lot of really good films. Um, and uh, Matt, you may disagree. I know you love no man land and I really like no man land as well, but, um, there's not necessarily anything that's to me at least and it see this seems to be a general consensus that's like man i really would love to see that movie celebrated and i'd love to see it kind of showered with praise see i feel that the difference isn't so much about like oh it's i you know these movies aren't being loved enough because i think that that i think first off you have to look at the oscars are we're putting movies into a competitive framework yeah which regardless of what you how you feel about that i think it's kind of silly but whatever if you're putting into a competitive framework, then you need to have like, well, I'm rooting for this, but you're rooting for that. At some point, it stops being about the films themselves and then becomes sort of about the whisper campaigns and the detractors. And you see that every year. Um, so like a film like La La Land comes out the gate and it's totally beloved and everyone's raving about it. And then it starts getting awards acclaim. And then all of a sudden it's like, why is this white guy talking about jazz? And it's all about like <laughs> fake jazz and, and it's dumb. Like, and it becomes all about the con, you know, it gets forced into this conversation in competitiveness. And then people are like, well, I like La La Land, but I think Moonlight is better. And I think Moonlight is, is the scrappy underdog and deserves more attention. And so it's all about the competition of the thing. And this year has no competition. Not because there's a clear winner, although I do think Nomadland will take it, but because no one was able to invest into a dog in that fight. So, you know, there's usually all these other extraneous factors that factor into a film's sort of performance. So you look at, like, say, last year, 
Parasite was kind of the surprise winner. It was sort of the little film that could. Yeah. But like Joker, I think had the most nominations last year or mm, it did. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I can't believe I remember that. Good for me. <laughs> um, but Joker, Joker had the most nominations. It was the biggest film at the box office. It grossed over a billion worldwide and it went home with only two Oscars, but it created this framework of sort of Joker was that was the one lined up to be the big successful film. And then that turned people against Joker. And again, it's all into this competitive framework yeah. that I think misses the point of discussing the art as itself. I think by that point, you're not talking so much about the movies. You're talking about campaigns and you're talking about how does this film measure up against this film, even though they're both trying to do something different than the other. And again, it's a weird way to compare art. I think at its best, it sort of elevates things to put them on your radar. So I think, again, last year was a great way of raising Pro Parasite's profile. And I hope that, you know, if Nomadland wins, it'll raise its profile. But I do think that the way you get people invested in the Oscars is you have to make them invested in the competition of the thing. And that's where I think this year fell off the tracks. You make a good point, because I remember like part of the delight is watching the big Directors Guild panel and Peter Farrelly starts talking and Spike Lee refuses to look at him. <laughs> and like this whole narrative of like, oh, like, okay, Spike Lee is really pissed that Green Book is in the mix. I really hope Green Book doesn't win, but I'm curious to see what Spike will say in his acceptance speech. Kind of same with Joker, like, oh man, like you and I were not the biggest fans of Joker, but like, it would be curious to see what happens if it kind of starts to run the table tonight. And I hope it doesn't. And I will kind of want to see if it does or does not. Um, you contrast that to like this year and watching the Golden Globes and you see Chloe Zhao win Best Director and David Fincher is like leaning in like happily like watching her acceptance speech like it's just kind of like a love fest like they're all pretty you know supportive of one another and there's not as you say there's no none of these like false narratives of like this movie against this movie and this movie is similar to that movie but it's better than that movie therefore it's more deserving than that movie. And this year it's kind of like, do you really care between Chicago 7 and Mank? Like, are you that passionate about either one of those films? Right. And I feel like it's, again, the Oscars are already silly. Awards are already silly. We have to remember that the reason the Oscars even exist is that Hollywood created them to bestow credibility upon themselves. That was the genesis of the Oscars. And it's so weird to be like, okay, so let me just get this straight. You're rich, you're beloved, but you also want a claim. So it wasn't enough to have the first two, you needed the third. And that's just very silly. And in the wake of a pandemic that we've all lived through for over a year now, sillier th silly things look even sillier. Yeah. And so to raise that level of investment to, to pretend at this moment. In normal times, we can take the Oscars as an entertaining thing and sort of, you know, again, argue about which film is, you know, is 1917 better than Parasite? Or, you know, what what does it mean for 1917 to, to, uh, to come in at this late stage in the race? You know, we can, we can get into that. But in these times, I, I don't have the bandwidth for it. Almost like, yeah. and it, again, it has nothing to do with the films themselves because I, I like most of those nominees and it has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with the, the pretense and sort of the, the pageantry of the Oscars themselves, which just feel took something again that felt silly. And now they feel even sillier. Yeah. Although, I, you know, I don't know, for me, there's always the joy every year of like, 
you know, cause you and I go to TIFF and like we saw Parasite at TIFF and I was like, oh man, I can't wait to talk to my friends and convince them to go see this movie. Cause I think they'll love it. Um, movies like that. And really in this crop of contenders, there was only one that I felt like that for me, which was Promising Young Woman. Cause something like Nomadland, I know kind of like, you know, oh, they're probably not gonna sit with that. Like that's a patient movie. It's specific to a certain point, maybe Sound of Metal, but you know, I don't know. And like Chicago seven is pretty good, but I wouldn't say you have to go and see it. And I'm not gonna tell anyone to see Mank cause that's a very niche audience. I'm probably one of like 12 people who actually like that movie. Um, so for me, there's less enthusiasm in terms of like sharing the films with people. And then, you know, the Academy comes up with its nominations. And so then your friends are trying to decide, okay, which one should I see? Um, and then your enthusiasm, like, oh, you should definitely see this. Or you should definitely see that. Um, and that's kind of bearing out in the fact that it, it appears as though no one is watching these movies. So right. like we can see the traffic on our website on these films most of these movies have been largely available to stream within the last year. And there still is very little enthusiasm or very little, like even just my, again, my friends or uh, my wife's coworkers who, uh, you know, she kind of uses as a gauge of like, Oh, have you seen this? Or have you seen that? Like they barely know what Nomadland is. So it's just not cutting into the zeitgeist the same way that uh, the crop of contenders have in the past. Right. There's no, and there's no urgency to it. There's yeah. no, oh, you got, you have to see this yeah. because, and if you don't see it in a theater, you're going to miss mm -hmm. the cultural conversation that's happening right now. All your friends are talking about, but if it's everything is just wildly available and just sitting there and has been sitting there, then it's like, I'll get around to it, mm -hmm. you know? And that's the thing about streaming is that they're, you know, for all the talk about, you know, the, the, the use of content and, oh, we need to add more content there's an argument to be made for scarcity and that when there is a set time limit in the in a, a set window of when you can see a certain film in theaters and be part of that communal experience that means something which is why like a lot of people like no like you can't come along right now and be like Hey, have you heard about Green Book? <laughs> there was a time, I mean, there was a time to talk about Green Book and that time has passed now because the film is pretty forgettable and, and disposable, but also like it did have its moment. Yeah. And I think there are, there are selections that will be, you know, based on the film itself will endure. Like I think Parasite endures mm -hmm. um, because it's about more than just where it was competing at a certain moment in a, a, an awards race. But I also feel like, you know, that notion of I have to see it now is gone in a streaming landscape. If you want to see Mank now, now that it has the most nominations this year, you can. You could have seen it two months ago. You can see it two months from now. See it <laughs> whenever. See it two years from now. See it two years from now. No one's really talking about Mank. Yeah. You know, and I think it's a, an interesting film in regards to David Fincher's filmography. But again, if you're looking like, Again, with, with so much content overloading people and you're forced to pick and choose what gets your attention, you're in a more competitive framework. Whereas theaters will only always have so many screens, so much time to devote to them. And they'll, the movies will only be there for a certain amount of time. So I think that scarcity pushes people out to, to the theater to, to see these kind of prestige films. Well, here's the thing. Looking back at 2018's Best Picture nominees... Um, here are some of the movies that were nominated for Best Picture that year. Black Panther, Black Klansman, Bohemian Rhapsody, The Favorite, A Star is Born, 
Green Book. Those movies, like people were talking about them, people were seeing them. What's the one streaming movie that was nominated year? Roma. No one saw Roma. <laughs> Next year, same thing. 2019, Parasite, Ford versus Ferrari, Jojo Rabbit, Joker, 1917, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. These are movies that you felt an urgency to see in the theater because like, oh, everyone's talking about it. I want to see it now. Even Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, before the Oscar nominations came out, um, well before, there was an urgency to see it. What were the streaming nominations that year? The Irishman and Marriage Story. And you heard from people, the Irishman is too long or I only made it so many minutes in. Marriage Story, oh, it's too hard to watch. Um, you and I had the privilege of seeing uh, Marriage Story at, at TIFF in a theater. And I really liked Irishman, even though I, well, I saw Irishman in a theater first. I saw Irishman in a theater as well. Yeah. But again, no, I totally get where people are coming from. Once you put it on streaming, there's not a lot of urgency and you're watching it alone. You're not seeing it with a crowd. Yeah. So you're not experiencing that sort of group emotion towards the experience. And so, yeah, these films are getting nominated in part because Netflix has, you know, bottomless funds to campaign. But I would not be surprised if, you know, on Oscar night, Mank goes home empty handed. I think it'll win like cinematography, like production. Really? I think even cinematography, I think Nomadland's going to get that one. Yeah, that's possible. You're right. I mean, it could, unless they go sound. But that could be sound. But of metal. Sound, that could be sound of metal again. You're right. For for a film that has ten nominations, yeah, and is the prestige, you know Netflix threw a lot of money at it. I mean, and so I'm you're saying, saying Mank is the Joker of 2021. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what I'm saying is Mank and Joker are the same film. In this essay, <laughs> I will explain. No, I, I just feel like, and it's not to say that Netflix will go home empty-handed. I feel like they will pick up awards here and there. Mm-hmm. But I also feel like it's fascinating to see where certain streaming titles, I mean, they were all streaming titles, but like where certain snubs happened, like it's weird that I feel like there's a case to be made that Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and One Night in Miami essentially canceled each other out in the best picture race because they're both uh, Black-centered films based on stage plays. Yeah. And the Academy's like, well, it's too stagey. Yeah. Which is just like such a, play. a... It's like a play, which A... If you think like limited location film, like just that, just say that. Like it's just it didn't go to enough locations, which is just it's just a, it's again you can tell if something is cinematic or not, but it has to just okay that's a different argument. But what I'm saying is is it's interesting sort of the films that got in and didn't, um, and sort of the idiosyncrasies. But even there, I can't like I guess the biggest outrage if I had to pick one was that Regina King wasn't nominated for best director. Mm-hmm. And even there, I can't bring myself to be invested because that cultural conversation is just didn't happen. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not around the people that I normally talk about films with. I'm, I'm sort of secluded in my house. So I don't get to have a talk about like, Hey, what'd you think about one night in Miami? Yeah. Okay. So when you take away all the people, well, it's hard to have those conversations. It, it, so this notion that's like, well, if it's just you and the content, what more do you need? And, and the answer is you need more. Yeah. Yeah. We are, you know, in a year in which no no one or very few people saw any of the contenders in a theater. And most people saw who did see the best picture nominees this year, um, saw them at home alone. Um, 
we are completely bereft any kind of zeitgeist tapping film. There is no A Star is Born. There is no, there are no memes, I think. And that's a silly thing to say, but there are no, I mean, no, Promising I think... Young Woman should be. And that is the closest I would say comes to something that tapped into the zeitgeist. But even then, you know, they started with this theatrical rollout and people weren't going because it was December and it was dangerous. So, you know, it's finally, I think, available on digital now is how most people are seeing it. But, you know. There is, there's no, uh, you, again, it sounds silly, but like Parasite was memed. Like it was a film that was- No, in it totally was. I mean, even a film that didn't, you know, win big, like there were so many, a star is born. Hey, I want to take another look at you. Yeah. Memes. And that's because there was a cultural space for it to happen. No one's going to make memes or think that memes will catch on in an environment where it's like, I'm going to make some Nomadland memes. It's like, who's seen Nomadland? I've yeah. seen it, but <laughs> it would not, I would like, what are you going to, it's hard for those things to catch on when people don't have the reference point and the reference is not immediately clear. Yeah. A Star is Born made over $400 million at the box office and had like a top 40 hit on the radio. Like yeah. That's... Starring Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga, who everyone yeah. knows. Like it's, and we already saw, and again, this is not to denigrate the nominees this year. I think Nomadland is a wonderful film. I think Minari is a wonderful film. I think Promising Young Woman is a wonderful film. But we did see a bunch of studios just decide, you know what? I'm holding it. I'm waiting. We're pushing to 2021. Like we know it's an Oscar contender, but we also want to make money at the box office, but we also want a cultural conversation. We're going to wait. Yeah, no, there were absolutely movies that were sort of set up in 2020 to sort of be like, this is our prestige Oscar contender. So something like, you know, West Side Story, Steven Spielberg's yeah. West Side Story would normally get a push. Even so, like, I think even In the Heights may get a push, Yeah, you know, even though it's now coming out in, in the summer. But those films are just not going to receive that same level of attention. And I think the studios have kind of borne that out where it's just like, you know what, let's give it over to the streamers this year. And ultimately that's, Kind of ironic because again, Nomadland is not. A, I mean, it's on Hulu, but it's it was from Fox Searchlight, which is not a streamer. Yeah, yeah, and it's frustrating because I think or, something I'm like sorry, Searchlight Pictures, Searchlight Pictures. <laughs> I think something like Minari or Promising Young Woman still would have ta could have tapped into that zeitgeist had the pandemic not happened. So had they had you know that slow theatrical rollout that A twenty four does so well that they did with like Moonlight, and it becomes like a conversation. Um, especially year after Parasite where people are like, all right, I'll go and hang the subtitles. Like, it's okay. Mm -hmm. um, I'll go check those out. Even something like Sound of Metal, I could have seen that being a buzzy thing. So this is all not to say, because I feel like it, you know, on the one hand, I'm saying no one's seen these movies. On the other hand, I feel like I'm saying like no one's seen this wildly diverse crop of contenders. Uh, and is there a reason for that? I think the reason is literally just that when everything is streaming and everything is a choice, you're not most people are not choosing uh, this kind of Oscar fair. You need you need convincing through the zeitgeist to make that leap or to go into a theater and be like, all right, I'm going to sit down. Like, I haven't seen The Father yet. You saw The Father at Sundance. I do not want to watch The Father. Tiff. I saw it at Tiff. <laughs> Tiff, okay. I don't want to watch The Father at uh, in my living room. Like, it just sounds yeah, so depressing. That's I don't the other thing. Do it. Right, that's the other thing we have to sort of wrestle with. And I think it's sort of, it's. I almost feel like we're, we're skipping over the obvious. Uh, it's hard to watch bummer movies at home. Yes. <laughs> like a lot of people don't want to watch Especially right now. Especially right now in the middle of a pandemic. No one wants to, it's like, hey, do you want to see a movie where uh, Anthony Hopkins plays, a, Anthony Hopkins plays a guy slowly slipping into Alzheimer's? Would that seem like a good way to spend two hours of your life? And it's a great movie and a fantastic performance. 
And it's the kind of film that I think people would go out to a theater to see, to be like, yes, I'm going to make the commitment. I'm going to go, I'm going to engage with this film. And then afterwards we're going to go to dinner uh, with my friend. We're going to talk about it, but in, in your living room, in the same space. And we've talked about this before where you're watching sports, where you're watching, you know, bombastic entertainment, the notion of like, well, this is also the space for the sad movie. It can be, but it's hard to get your head space there, especially after a year of a pandemic, it's just yeah. very difficult. And it's, and again, that's no fault of the films. Like you have to look at these movies in a larger context uh, and not just in a vacuum. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to, and also with distractions, like it's hard to be like, all right, going to sit down, going to emotionally get in the headspace for the father. Um, but also probably got to feed the dog in a little bit. Um, and also, Oh, that lights on or like, Oh, the dog needs to go out or like, Oh, I'm get up, go to the bathroom real quick. Hit pause. You can like just immediately remove yourself from that emotional experience. And so the prospect of sitting down to do it, knowing you're probably going to pause it a couple of times is not as enticing. I don't think as opposed to, I mean, you and I are incredibly privileged when we get to see these movies at film festivals because it's like, I have literally nothing else to do. It is my job to go see this movie. So I am going to go see The Father. But as we even discussed, a film festival at home is not as strong as experience as the film no. festival in person, no. as we discovered with Tiff and Sundance. So again, I feel like so many of these movies have not really received the experience that they should. I mean, Nomadland got like an IMAX release. I would have loved to have seen it in IMAX. It's not safe to do so. Yeah. I'm not vaccinated yet. So it's not safe for me to venture out to a theater and like hope, put on a mask and hope for the best. Mm -hmm. Like I love Nomadland. I don't love Nomadland that much to roll the dice on COVID. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. I would have loved to have seen Nomadland in a theater. I would have loved to have seen Mank in a theater. Yeah. That that's the thing. Fantastic. Like, and this isn't just, and, and I think, again, this whole experience is really sort of cementing the notion that when we talk about the theatrical experience, this is not a romanticization of, oh, it's celluloid or, oh, yeah. the projection and the smell of popcorn. Like, no, this is a different experience and it, and it has built in sort of ramifications that we, when you take them away, now you're seeing the result and the result is that everything blends together. There's no real cultural rallying point and the ability to engage with these films on a massive level suffers because it's not all just content. I know it's easier for studio executives and C-suite guys to sort of see that, see it that way, but it's just not. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's very frustrating <laughs> even something like borat like borat getting a you know not only an adapted screenplay nomination but also supporting actress that feels like in a theatrical environment that's a movie that more people have seen but i don't know many people that watched borat i know it almost feel like felt like borat existed purely in a political moment yeah. to sort of you know really be part of uh, an anti-trump wave and look i mean we that was a bad day for Rudy Giuliani. That was more than one thing happened to him that day. Um, but it, again, and like, but I, as, as a comedy, I would have loved to have seen it with a crowd as I, cause I think comedies are better with crowds. Mm -hmm. Same with horror. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know. It's, it's this weird, like, I'm not necessarily mad at this crop of contenders. I mean, there are some, like I would have loved to have seen Delroy Lendo nominated I do think that Ma Rainey's Black Bottom deserved a Best Picture nomination and probably One Night in Miami. Again, I would have loved to have seen Regina King nominated. 
but the best the director's branch of the academy just loves their left field choice <laughs> like remember when pavel pavlikowski won or got yeah nominated for that's Cold the thing Wars? i think at this point you have to look at how international the director's branch is and just yeah. accept that there's a strong possibility from here on out that a foreign film nomination is in the offing for uh, a director and I saw something recently on Twitter and I can't remember who did it, but they took kind of a deep dive into, um, so the Academy has done really radical changes ever since Oscar So White, um, adding a bunch of new members, but a really large amount of those new members and the most radical change has been adding a lot more international mm -hmm. filmmakers. Yes. So directors, actors, producers, you know, um, writers, cinematographers from around the world. And I think that's starting to reflect a bit. I mean, it's, you know, like the father feels like a really kind of somewhat left field choice for best picture. It didn't have the producers guild of, of America nomination um, that most best picture nominees have. So I don't know. I, I think that's a, that's a curious thing to keep an eye on going forward. Cause again, like these acting nominations, it's great to see Riz Ahmed and Steven Yun nominated Chadwick Boseman, you know, is going to run away with it and deservedly so. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm not super mad about any of these nominees. Yeah. I aside I, from Glenn Close for Hillbilly Elegy as Mammal, which I still have not seen and refuse <laughs> to see. You're missing a great comedy, man. I'm just telling you. <laughs> uh, if, you think, if you think J.D. Vance says stupid things on Twitter, wait till you see the movie based on his book. Um, yeah, I just feel like it's it's hard to just get worked up in a way that I normally would. And, oh, and again, the Oscars are silly, but I, I, it's hard to engage just in the larger cultural conversation. And, and, and it looks like, you know, as vaccines ramp up and, you know, every, the, the intent is that anyone can get vaccinated by May, that when next year's Oscar season rolls around, we're going to be looking at a very, you know, something resembling normalcy. Uh, I think it'll and, be an embarrassment of riches, frankly, because studios are going to get all this stuff off their chest. Mm -hmm. like, we yeah, gotta get our backlog out. Exactly. And so, and I hope, you know, and in a weird way, I hope it doesn't sell these films short. And I can easily see sort of a, a scenario where people like a few years down the line, it's like, oh man, I can't believe I missed Nomadland. I mean, it, it yeah. had all these awards. I can't, why didn't I see Nomadland? It's like, well, because you were in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You were in the middle of a pandemic and you're feeling sad and it was time to pop on Parks and Recreation again. Yeah, That's what it was. Like, you didn't feel like watching a movie about a bunch of people without homes and with not a lot of money. Yeah, of it wasn't the stuff. right time to watch Francis McDormand shit in a bucket. <laughs> There's a right time for that and a wrong time for that. It just, just wasn't quite the right time. And it was the wrong time. Um, I wanted to ask you, have you seen The White Tiger? I have not seen The White Tiger. Okay. That was and a nice is, surprise for screenplay. And I had heard some really good stuff yeah. about it. The film, the big films that I missed, I haven't seen another round yet. Yes. Um, and I haven't seen Wolf Walkers yet. Um, but I, I, I felt like I covered most of my bases. I, I and, and then there are some where it's sort of like, how much do I like, how much do I really want to see United States versus Billy Holiday when I've heard yeah. that Andre Day, Andre Day is great, but the movie is not. Yeah. <laughs> so like, it's those sort of questions. Oh, listen, I uh, just got done ranking the best actress winners of the 21st century. So I've seen a lot of the, those, uh, the performance is great. The movie is terrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I watched the Iron Lady for the first time. That Oof. was not fun. Watch the hours again. <laughs> the weeks. The weeks. <laughs> So, you know, that's certainly a thing that happens uh, more often than not in the in the actress, best actress yeah. category. Which is um, so, yeah, I feel like, and you know, I feel like it's 
it'll be interesting. Oh, you know so- what I just realized? What? Tenet didn't get a, an original score nomination. No, and I like that score a lot. It is a good score. Um, I'm curious to see if 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 Reznor and Ross will win for Mank or Soul. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, and I was happy that I, I think I was I was bracing for in terms of snubs, and it didn't happen. Thankfully, I was bracing for a Eurovision snub. Yeah, um, same here. And I was like, oh, they're going to snub Eurovision, and they didn't. And they they I mean, selected they did, though because they, did they not didn't select Yaya Ding Dong. Honestly, Husevik is a very good song. Honestly, it would be a great choice if in the middle. So Soderbergh is is producing this year's Academy Awards, and it'd be yeah. great if they got that guy in the <laughs> ceremony. And every now and then he just shouts out, hey, yeah, yeah, ding, dong. I would not be surprised to learn that because I remember Will Ferrell was doing a podcast last year and was like earnestly saying like he would love to perform at the Oscars. Like he really, really wants to perform at the Oscars. Yeah. So I think that'll be a fun uh, performance for that yes. one specifically. No, I think it'll be an interesting broadcast. I mean, everyone was sort of saying last night that the Grammys really brought it and that the Oscars kind of need to up their game. The Grammys um, telecast was fantastic. It was really seamless. Um, crazy long. I always fight with this with my wife because she loves the Grammys. I love the Oscars. So we have to, we made right. each other watch each, each one. <laughs> um, but after that, like, I don't, I don't know if you can get worse than the Golden Globes telecast, which was just horrible and so many like missed uh, mm-hmm. cues and, and cuts and everything see and that's the thing and that's what i'm curious about it's like will people be as tuned out for the oscars as they were for the golden globes yeah um and that's a that's a that's a valid question uh and i don't have the answer to it i i have faith in in soderbergh of course i think mm-hmm. it will be a good show i just don't know who's going to tune in yeah i mean i think you know the the grammys did it on this rooftop and they had the main nominees at these tables that they could swap out as the categories changed of course, the Grammys only give out like five or six awards throughout the whole show. Oscars, you have a lot more. So I imagine they're going to ask people to pre-record in like best sound and, you know, mm-hmm. some of the, the yeah, to keep like things short categories. But it would be fun if you had, you know, a Minari table and you could watch like Alan Kim react to stuff. Like, I think yeah. that would be enjoyable. the Alan Kim cam just <laughs> focused Alan on Kim. him and his reactions. Of course, the, the promising young woman table will be the party table because you'll just have a bunch of like fun, funny people. Yes, uh, hanging out. So, yeah, I um, think it'll. I think it'll be a good telecast. I think it'll be the lowest rated Oscars in history, but you know, yeah, or in, but in modern history. But but again, I think that's a reflection of the times we're living in, rather than yeah. you know, oh, if only they had added a best popular film category. Mm-hmm. Yeah, God, I forgot about that. <laughs> I'm here to. <laughs> what would they me. have done for this year? It would have just been like Invisible Man, the end. <laughs> Bloodshot, I guess. Bloodshot. <laughs> I will say now that you've mentioned it, now I want more than anything is to watch Vin Diesel give an Oscar acceptance speech. <laughs> when we talk about family, <laughs> we talk about bloodshot. We talk about bloodshot. Um, so yeah, I just you know I don't begrudge the Oscars. I think they're silly, but whatever. I um, I feel I feel bad because I I wish that the artists in such a diverse field that the fact there is so much diversity this year could receive more recognition in the same way that I felt sort of like, you know, 2020 was shaping up to be the year when big blockbuster superhero films finally went to women directors. We were supposed to get, you know, Kate Shortland with Black Widow and and again, Chloe Zhao again with Eternals. And at the um, end with Birds of Prey and Mulan, you know, was supposed to be another female fronted blockbuster. Exactly. And it all just kind of fell by the wayside. Yeah. 
So, I mean, hopefully we'll get Black Widow in May, but yeah. <laughs> we'll see. I think so. I think it'll happen. You think, think it'll happen? I think we're going to have a, I think we're things are going to bounce back pretty robustly this year in terms of movies because people are ready. So cool. All right. Well, with that, let's uh, let's move on to recently watched. I did have one question though. No, was there... we're done. Moving on to recently. <laughs> no. <laughs> was there a particular nomination that you were particularly delighted to see this year? Yes, I was very happy to see Paul Racy get nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Uh, he was sort of on the bubble for a nomination, mm-hmm. and uh, I think it's great that he got in. It's such a it's such a great performance um, that I don't think I don't think Sound of Metal would be as successful without him. And I'm very glad that they recognized his work. Yeah, same here. I was really pulling for that one. What about you? Who were you happy? Uh, I mean, I was pleasantly surprised to see Love and Monsters get a visual effects nomination. <laughs> I thought that was just kind of random and fun. Um, I liked the that Terrence Blanchard got nominated for Best Original Score for Defy Bloods because mm. I think his score on that is pretty terrific. But yeah, Paul Racy was that was a that was a really big one um, for me that I was kind of pulling for. So. But again, like most things fell into place as expected. I mean, it's nice. It's it's kind of crazy that Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield both got nominated for supporting actor because they campaigned Stanfield as best actor. And the actor, the actor's branch was like, nah, we're going to go support him. Just decided. See, and what's so fun. weird is I find, I you know, I always saw it the other way. I, yeah, thought, I thought Kaluuya was the lead and Stanfield was the supporting. Yeah, yeah. But- yeah, you know, they both are being recognized and it's going to up their quote for what they get paid. It's going to help them sell movies now because they, they don't put best supporting actor nominee on. The, they just say Oscar nominee, Daniel Kaluuya. Right, he already was, but Oscar nominee, you know, Lakeith Stanfield. So it's great. And we escaped a Jared Leto. We escaped a Jared much. Leto thing. <laughs> by this much. Just, just missed it. Yeah. So yeah. Um, all right. Well, with that, let's move on to recently watched. What have you seen lately? I have seen what I think is one of the greatest television shows ever made, and it is called Stanley Tucci Searching for Italy. And yeah. I know you are also a fan. I'm such a fan of the Tucci and Stanley Tucci's Searching for Italy. Uh, like you, we've been watching just a lot of like comfort stuff. I've also been watching a lot of. We're making slowly making our way through the Marvel movies, but also more quickly, I've been making my way through the DC movies because next week podcast will be all about the Snyder Cut. Um, and Stanley Tucci searching for Italy. It's this docu-series. I think it's only six episodes for the first season. Uh, it's on CNN, but you can watch it on demand through CNN's app. Um, but it's just Stanley Tucci going around Italy, eating food and talking to people, um, which, you know, is that kind of travelogue is, is a kind of show that has existed for a long time. And I don't think anyone is ever going to do it as, as well as Anthony Bourdain did. Um, but it is fun to see Stanley Tucci doing it. He is of Italian descent. Um, his family is from Italy. And he goes to the different regions and you learn a lot because you learn kind of what what food came from this region, what food came from that region, but also the reasons, you know, the reasons that the food in Northern Italy is different from the, from the food in Southern Italy and, you know, specific uh, ways that they make their food in different places. But mostly it's just watching Stanley Tucci eating pasta. Well, it's so funny. I mean, first off, he's a great narrator. I mean, yeah, he's yeah. just... I'm surprised like he doesn't do more audiobooks and stuff. It's just, it's, he's got a great voice. Mm-hmm. He's got a great engagement with it. But also I watched that show and it's like, man, I am eating garbage <laughs> in the sense of not just garbage, but also like 
like, ah, look at our, how, how pure our mozzarella is. This is the way your mozzarella should be. And I look at my mozzarella from Publix and be like, that's not the same. <laughs> yeah. This is not fresh mozzarella. Well, even they go to, um, uh, gosh, what's the San Marzano tomatoes? Yeah, for the tomatoes. So it's like, yeah, they're, they're only made in this one small tiny field and everything you're buying that says San Marzano is shit. It's not actually. It's not actually. Yeah, what, the things you make at home is are bad, actually. You have to come to <laughs> yes. Italy and have what we're serving here. But I do like that the show is not just like all Michelin star restaurants and stuff. Yeah. Like it's, you know, in the very first episode, he goes to get like a goes to uh, Nip- uh, Nipoli, right? Nip- Nepali? Nip- yeah, Na- Napoli. Napoli, Napoli. Uh, and gets just like a like a cheap pizza, but it's like amazing because it's made yeah. with the best ingredients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what I really like about Guy Fieri's shows too, is he goes to those kind of hole in the walls, but it not only that highlights the great food, but like the people that have put in yeah. the love and the care into it and it goes back generations. So Yeah, and it's great because I think the show also sort of highlights the culture. It doesn't shy away from, you know, more controversial aspects, sort of like, you know, this history is, you know, these people were moved out here because of this, or they mm-hmm. did this, and this is why the thing is like that. I think it's good. I think it's a, you know, it's a show that feels fulfilling. Yeah. You know, and um, it's been picked up for a second season, which I think is great. Um, I can't wait. And so yeah, there were like two episodes of it that they shot during COVID. Right. Um, and so you see them, you know, sometimes wearing masks and stuff. But the other episodes yeah. were shot before. So. But I think, you know, again, it's it's a great show. I think it's a great showcase for Tucci. Yeah. Uh, and if you're sort of like if you're, you know, pardon the pun, hungering for more in that vein, <laughs> You should definitely check out his, I believe it was 1995 or 1996 film, Big Night, mm. uh, which is he he uh, plays the owner of a restaurant and Tony Shalhoub is his brother who's a chef. Uh, it's a it's a good film. It's a film that'll make you hungry, but it's good. I've never seen that. Oh, you've never seen Big out. Night? Yeah, it's worth mm-hmm. checking out. Um, cool. What have uh, you so- seen? What I've seen is I am just making my way through like 90s action movies um, <laughs> because they're comforting. Like basically like right now for work, I'm watching a bunch of uh, Showa era Godzilla films for articles that will be forthcoming on the site in the lead up to Godzilla versus Kong. But in my free time, I kind of want to just watch comforting stuff. So uh, this weekend I watched the Jean-Claude Van Damme diehard knockoff sudden death. And um the plot of the film is that Jean-Claude Van Damme plays a former fireman who's now working at a sports arena during game seven of the NHL championship and terrorists have broken in and uh, are holding the vice president hostage. The vice president is played by Raymond Barry, who you may better know as the dad from walk hard. (laughs) (laughs) So every time you see him, you're like, the wrong kid died. The wrong kid died. The wrong kid died. <laughs> um, and the, the terrorists who are led by Powers Booth, their plan is to, uh, they want all this money wired to various accounts and, by the president. And if he doesn't do it by the end of the game, they're going to blow up the stadium. And so only Jean-Claude Van Damme can stop them. It's not bad. It's But I do feel it makes a mistake in that, a lot of innocent people get killed. Like for the terrorists to do their plan, like they kill like a lot. Like it's okay. It's like, it's one thing to be like in Die Hard where it's like, oh, they killed Takahashi and they killed the the guy at the front desk. 
you know, like, and it's sad, but like more terrorists die than innocent people and, and sudden death doesn't quite have that worked out. So like, yeah, all the terrorists die, but more innocent people than terrorists die. And I feel like the film is almost trying to upend expectations, but in a really superficial way. It's like, so instead of being a former fire, for a former cop, he's a former fireman. And instead of trying to save the president, he'll save the vice president. <laughs> and it's just like <laughs> these sort of little things that don't really change anything, but technically that makes it different. Um, but it's it's fine for what it is. It's on, I watched it on Showtime. Um, Jean-Claude Van Damme is, is an entertaining guy. It's, it's funny because with Jean-Claude, you're getting a guy who actually knows martial arts um, and can use his physicality. So in like a film like Die Hard, it's about like, let's get Bruce Willis a gun because he needs a gun. Whereas in Sudden Death, they're always trying to like knock the gun away so that like Van Damme has to rely on his martial arts skills for like <laughs> fist fights. It's interesting. You know, it's sort of yeah. playing to the strengths of your, of your lead. Um, but yeah, I, I thought it was all right. Um, but it, it gets the job done in terms of that sort of low demand nineties action film. Yeah. I, I will say it's not my favorite genre. Like I really like speed and die hard, but it's not something I like return to very often, but it's probably one I need. I have some blind spots in, you know, and the thing is, again, it's, it's not even so much like I'm going to like herald these as like fantastic movies, but they do have sort of a silliness to them and sort of a casualness uh, they're sort of casual in a way that you can appreciate. Like uh, over on Uproxx, Mike Ryan had a great article recently about how he was talking to the Kumail Nanjiani and, and it's like, why don't we have these R-rated movies anymore? These R-rated action movies more. And Nanjiani pointed out that today when you make an R-rated movie, it's a decision. You know, it's a big decision. Like for, for a film like Deadpool to be rated R, like it's going to be part of the appeal is it has to be rated R Whereas you could just release an R-rated action film in the nineties and it was fine. Like, yeah. And so like, I, like a couple of weeks ago, I watched broken, I rewatched broken arrow and like, it's fun. Like it's a fun movie. Um, it's not like going to change your life, but it's fun nineties fodder action fodder. So yeah. that's sort of what I'm going for right now. They spent money on those as opposed to nowadays where, you know, if you, if it's an R-rated action movie, it's got to be a superhero movie. And it either has to be a superhero movie or it has to be extraction. Like it has yeah. to be, it has to be like, or like a John Wick level. The action here is so perfectly choreographed. It will blow your mind. Yeah. You know, and there, I don't know. Again, I feel like the MPA is just completely outdated. Yeah. At the very least, the rating system is outdated and needs to be modified. Um and because I think that's what we, you know, we're seeing a consequence of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, all right. Well, thank you all so much for listening. As we said, uh, reader hot takes are back. So if you have a, an opinion on the show, just leave us a review on iTunes and we will engage with your hot take on the show. Uh, so we want to hear from you. Uh, and then, yes, next week's episode will all be all about uh, Zack Snyder's Justice Justice League. <laughs> it'll be Yay. it'll be a long episode for a it'll long a big movie. One. Uh, so tune in for that. Uh, if you want to give up this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week.